Let me do a quick, a quick review of last week, and then we'll get started with this week. As you're painfully aware, I hope it's been pleasant, but you're aware we've been going through this exhaustive process of the gospel, um, the context that should be wrapped around the gospel, the gospel itself, um, how does somebody respond to the gospel. And then the last few weeks we've been talking about um, what happens. Now it's, this will be the third week, like what happens when you respond to the gospel, what changes in your life. And last week we talked about our relationship to the law changes with the gospel and read from Galatians 5.1 it was for freedom that Christ set us free therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery that yoke of slavery is the law read from Romans 8.1-4 therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. The gist of the message is that once you make that confession of the lordship of Jesus and, and by faith in your heart, you recognize him as the full payment for your sin debt to God, your relationship with him changes legally you leave the law of sin and death as how you relate to god how you can have relationship with him and you enter in under the the law of the spirit of life in christ jesus it's important to understand and i and i talked about it last week i just want to talk about it this week because it's not it's not an easy concept and and seriously um the depth of understanding that i i feel like i have has only recently come and and that's to understand the relationship between sin and law. So let me just read you three quick scriptures that we used last week, touch on them just briefly, and then we'll move on. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Romans 4, 15. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also, excuse me, is no violation. And then Romans 7, 8. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. So what we have to understand is that when we moved from this legal system, the law of sin and death, into this legal system, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, I use the word, I don't know what word I used last week, but the word that's in my head is emasculated, and that's, that's not... Oh, it is? It didn't feel like a great word last week. It doesn't feel that great now, but I guess it's a good one because I can't think of another. Literally, sin's legs were cut off at the knees. Sin has no power over us because the power of sin is the law. Um, I thought of the example that Teresa and I were trying to remember last week, and then I forgot it again. Oh, it's, uh, it's, if you think of it like diplomatic immunity, right? So if you're a diplomat, did I, did I share this last week? Okay, I talk so much I can never remember exactly where it was. That, that if, you're, if you're a diplomat and you're in New York City, let's say you're a diplomat from Germany, you can park wherever you want because, and not get a ticket, not get your car towed away because you're not under the law of the United States. You're immune to the law. And so there's no penalty. 
And that's the way a Christian is. We are immune to the law. The law has no power over us. So if it's not illegal to do anything, then sin isn't empowered. Sin is empowered by the, the penalty that comes with the law. But if you take away the law, then sin's power is gone. And that's the life that we have. We don't live under the law. Therefore, sin has no power over us. It doesn't give us a license to sin. And, and I'm not, I didn't deal with it last week, and I'm not going to deal with it this week. Sometime in the future, I will deal with it. But Paul does very strongly when he's explaining to us that we're not under, under law, but under grace. And he says, well, then if, if the case is true that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, why don't we just have us a sinful old good time and watch all the grace come? He says, no, no, it can never be like that. It has to be different than that. But not because of law. We're not under the law. We are absolutely not under the law. If we break the law, there's no penalty for us because we're not under the law. I talked a little bit about this sermon that I heard from this fellow by the name of Tim Keller, the battle between selves, and how um, he describes this battle in the unbeliever and in the believer, um, between selves, like between ourselves. And in the unbeliever, he said it's an unwinnable battle. It's the most tormenting thing in the world because you can't get out of the battle and there's no hope to win it. And as a believer, it's different because it's an unlosable battle. And basically, for the unbeliever, the battle is between knowing God's morality, his law, because he's written it on your heart. Even though you may not be under the Mosaic law, you're, you're bound by God's morality and the conscience he's given you, yet you live in the flesh. So you always are wanting to do bad things, but you know they're bad. You don't have the Holy Spirit, so you can't control yourself from doing the bad, and you're constantly in this churning miserable thing of battling with yourself and never winning. But for the Christian, he said it's very different because now you not only know what's right and you have a conscience to do what's right, you have no penalty. You're not under any obligation if you don't do what's right. And therefore, the law, where it was by design, Scripture gives a couple of different descriptions of why the law, but one of the ways it says was to bring life Right? That, if, that if you wanted to have life, relationship with God, you would just have his morality, you would have his holiness, you would have his righteousness, and you would have relationship with God. But the law was weak because the flesh was weak. The flesh would not submit itself to the law. Therefore, we sin, and our relationship with God was broken. As a Christian, we don't have that problem anymore. And we have the presence of Holy Spirit who empowers us, not only convicts us, but empowers us to walk in righteousness and holiness and truth. Tim Keller said in that sermon, did anybody actually listen to it? I put it up on our website. Ben, you did. Kim, a few of you listened to it. It's thought-provoking, isn't it? Yeah. I disagree with him. One of the points that he made, and, and, I'll, and I'll talk about that today, but it was really, really a, a thought-provoking, very excellent uh, message. But he said, if you don't understand Romans 7, 6, Romans chapter 7, verse 6, you don't understand Christianity. And when I'm listening to it, I'm in the car driving to uh, my chaplain thing, and I don't have, I mean, you know, I know a lot of scriptures, but just off the top of my head, I don't know exactly what Romans 7, 6 is, and it was really bugging me because I'm thinking I've got to understand Christianity, my goodness, but I'm not sure I understand whatever that verse is that he's talking about. Well, this, this is Romans 7, 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. 
And that's, that's the whole gist of this conversation from last week is that we truly need to understand that, that we're still serving, but we serve in the spirit, not under the, the headship of the law anymore. And it changes everything. So <laughs> Teresa was coming out of her chair most of my sermon because I had shared with her one of the conclusions that uh, Tim Keller made at the end of the first of the two messages that were this, this particular sermon that he preached. And she thought I wasn't going to say it, but I had it at the very end of my notes. And, and it was this. All of that thing about the law is, so if we were under law before and we're not under law now, what's our relationship to the law? And now, now this isn't my brilliant thinking. This is Tim Keller, but it's, it's in my words. It's not exactly the way he said it. Our relationship to the law looks like this. Once you or we recognize you've been set free from the law, what place does the law have in our lives? That you love the law because you realize keeping it isn't for your own purpose to avoid death, but it becomes the vehicle by which you demonstrate honor and express love to the one who saved you. So our relationship to the law was to try to keep the law because we needed to be righteous, but we don't have that problem anymore. So what's the relationship with the law? We recognize because the scripture tell us, tells us that the law is holy and the command is holy and righteous and good that by keeping the law, we actually are being very pleasurable, pleasing, and honoring Jesus who saved us. And that's the way we interact with the law today, not as a way to be righteous, but just as a way to honor God and to love him. So how many are familiar with, with Romans chapter 7. And then how many would say that if you're familiar with Romans chapter 7, one of the most confusing courses of scripture in the Bible is in Romans chapter 7? Amen. I mean, it, I would just avoid it like the plague because it just never made any sense to me. And, and since this whole study has started, um, and specifically since I stumbled over, it's funny, when I saw the sermon showed up on my YouTube from Tim Keller, I didn't think it was going to be about what it was about. And then I've been reading Romans chapter 7 like crazy for probably two or three weeks now. And then I read Romans 6 and 7 and Romans 6 and 7 and 8 and Romans 7 and 8 and all this kind of stuff because I really want to understand the end of this Romans chapter 7 that makes no sense to me. And I really think I understand it. Although this is the part I disagree with Tim Keller on. But I'm going to make um, a case to you from the scriptures. And it's, it's interesting if you if you um, take any like Bible study courses from anybody who's really got any depth to them, they'll tell you that the the most appropriate way to interpret Scripture is with Scripture, right? So when you see what we're going to see in Romans seven, and it doesn't just doesn't feel right in the way it feels like it's being presented, then you let the Scriptures, the other Scriptures, the full counsel of the Word of God interpret what that means for you so that you can get to what God's intent was for, for those, um, those verses of Scripture. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, just right on through, and then I'm going to take it chunk by chunk and use Scripture to help interpret what Paul was actually saying in seven fourteen through 25. Okay, here we go. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, now this is the Apostle Paul speaking, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, 
sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for joyful, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. So if you weren't familiar with that course of scripture before, you can see what a crazy kind of mixed up thing it is relative to everything else you know about Christianity. It, it's just, it's very tough. There's some words in there that just, just remember uh, as I'm reading, they're, they're in my head. Practicing, practice, members, when he talks about the members of his body, because those are going to be important as we let scripture interpret scripture. All right, now let, let's go through again, and I'm just going to stop and start. And I didn't get, I, I, um, Caitlin, you have my scriptures that interpret scripture, but not the other ones mixed in. So I'll just read them, and then you can show the, the, the new ones. Uh, okay, so verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Let me just give you a little bit from the end at the beginning. I, I think there's three potential answers to what the heck Paul is trying to do here or who he's describing or what he's describing of himself. The first is that it's his testimony as a Christian and it's just how it is. The second is that it's his testimony as a Christian, but it's before he's gotten this revelation of his new relationship to the law. He's still trying to please the law and he can't. The third is that it's not his testimony as a Christian. And I think that's the point that, that you'll see from these scriptures. So Paul says in this course of scripture that I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. He says that um, the law is spiritual, but he is of flesh. So he's contrasting himself with spiritual. He's saying that he's not spiritual. He's of flesh in bondage to sin. This is Romans seven fourteen, but in Romans 7, 5, he speaks to the people he's writing to, and he says, For while we, were, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So he's speaking of a past time when we were in the flesh and we had these sinful passions, and the members of our body were bearing fruit to death aroused by the law. It's, it's inconsistent with him being in the spirit now. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. 
the very next chapter. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him, to, to God. So here now Paul is saying in Romans 7.14 that he's of the flesh, sold in bondage to sin. But in Romans 8.9 he says if you're of the flesh, you don't belong to God. But if you have the Spirit, you do belong to God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, this is still the Apostle Paul speaking. Um, my, my verse references look messed up here. Oh, it's 14, 214 through chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, but a natural man, a natural man would be someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. Now, it, that might be a little confusing. He's not denying that they are spiritual men, but they're, they're immature spiritual men. The, the point that I want you to see here is that the person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit can't discern the things of the Spirit. So Paul cannot write these things to people and have them to be able to discern what he's saying unless they have the Holy Spirit to discern them. And what he's, he's, he's correcting the Corinthian church because despite the fact that they're spiritual men, he can't treat them like spiritual men. But the point is they are spiritual men. There's a distinct difference between the natural man and the spiritual man. The natural man can't please God. The spiritual man has the Holy Spirit and can please God. The things of the Spirit to the natural man are nonsense. To the spiritual man, they're not because they have the Spirit to discern them. Okay, You can't be a born-again natural man. You can't be a saved natural man. If you're a natural man and you die in that second, you go to hell. If you have the Holy Spirit, you go to heaven. That's the distinction of a Christian. They either have the Spirit or they don't. I don't care if they were raised in the church. I don't care if they went to church seven times a week. I don't care if they read the Bible front to back, back to front, inside out, could quote every scripture that ever was. If they don't have the Holy Spirit, they're not a Christian. Okay. He says, I am sold into bondage to sin. But in just the previous chapter, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, he said this, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. So in, in, in one place he's saying that he's sold into bondage to sin and in the other place he says because he's a Christian he, he's not a slave to sin. He's not in bondage to sin. So he can't, we know for sure that in chapter 6 he's describing himself as a Christian. So that would indicate to me that in chapter 7 he's not. Because he's not in bondage to sin anymore. That's what he said in chapter 6. And then again in chapter 6 and verse 14 he says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. So, so when, and you'll see this as we go further. When he says, you know, I don't understand. Why is it that I keep doing these things that I don't want to do? And why do I do all these evil things and I don't do the good things? He's like, no, sin's not your master. How could that be him in his Christian, born-again, converted state? 
Okay, reading on now, uh, verse 15. We've gotten through one verse so far. It'll be bigger, <coughs> bigger chunks now. Paul again speaking in Romans 7, starting in 15 through 20. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Remember I said notice the words practice and practicing. He says I'm practicing the very evil that I hate and I'm not practicing the righteousness that I wish I could do. First John chapter 3 verses 6 through 10. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow up First John chapter 3 sometime in the next couple of weeks for us because it's so enlightening. But this part right now. No one who abides in him, capital H, him, Jesus, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now, I just want to stop at the end of that verse just quickly, and then I'll read some more. Where it says knows him, that's the Greek word genosko or genosko. It's the same word that Mary uses when the angel comes and says she's going she's gonna to have a child. And she says, but I've, in, some, in some translation it says, but I'm a virgin. In other translations it says, but I've never known a man. And what she's saying is I've never had that intimate knowing of a man that could actually produce a child. In um, Matthew chapter 7, you know, with the Lord, Lord guys, and on that day many will come to me and say, so Lord, Lord, didn't we? And they, you know, say all this stuff. And he'll say, away from me, you doers of iniquity or you practicers of lawlessness, I never knew you. It's the same word. He said, I never had any knowing relationship with you. And what, what um, uh, John is saying here is no one who abides in Jesus sins. It's just not possible for them to abide in Jesus and sin. And no one who practices sin has seen Jesus or has that intimate saving knowledge of him. He goes on to say, little children, verse 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin, because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now, does anybody think that the Apostle Paul wasn't born of God? Does anybody think that the Apostle Paul wasn't born again, wasn't saved, wasn't a Christian? Of course not. Yet, he just told us in Romans chapter 7 that what he practices is evil. And what he doesn't practice is righteousness. And the Apostle John says that it's obvious to you who belongs to God and who belongs to the devil. The one who practices evil belongs to the devil. The one who practices righteousness belongs to God. In uh, 
the Romans 7 scripture, it says, but if I am doing the very thing I do not, excuse me, but if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. In Romans chapter 6, 12 and 13, the same guy in just the previous chapter writes this, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members, remember that word members? The members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now Paul said in 7 that he presents his members to evil. And, and here he's saying, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. If he says don't let it, that means you don't have to let it. It means that you have control. Sin doesn't have control. But he says it's sin in me that's doing it, like sin has control. I may be way over beating this dead horse, but I want you to understand that this isn't a Christian witness that Paul is giving you in 7, 14 through 25. Because it contradicts almost everything he said in chapter 6, some of the things he said in the beginning of chapter 7, and then what he says in chapter 8. Let me go on. Verse 21. This is of the 14 through 25 now. I find the principle or the law, I find the principle or the law that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Now, remember, an unsaved person would still have the problem he described. The one who wants to do good, but I don't do good. Why? Because God has written his law on their heart. His morality is written on the heart of every human being, whether they're saved or not, and he's given them a conscience to be able to be aware of it. It's not just the Christian that has a conscience to do good. The unsaved person does as well, made in the image of God with the law of God written on their heart and a conscience to actually be aware of it. Unless... They so deny God that he gives them that hardened heart and he takes away the conviction, which, man, nobody wants to be in that spot. Okay, so he says, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. In chapter 6, verse 19, he says, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. He's not a prisoner of the law of sin if he's a Christian. He doesn't have to present, even though he's, he's demonstrating that he has no control over it because he's not a Christian being described in 14 through 25. And then in Romans 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. In 7, 23, he says making me a prisoner of the law of sin. But in 8.2, he says, you've been set free from the law of sin. Wh which is it? Is he set free or isn't he? Well, what he's describing in 14 through 25 is not a Christian. What he's saying in 8.2 is the reality of a Christian. You don't, you don't have the law of sin. It's not over you anymore. And then he finishes, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. So then what's going on here? Again, I told you earlier, 
because I think it would be helpful to have these three possibilities in your mind as you're hearing the scriptures. The first is the perspective that Tim Keller would propose, and that that's, that 14 through 25, what a wretched man I am, why is it that I only practice the evil that I don't want to practice, and I don't practice the righteousness or the good that I do want to practice, blah, 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 blah. Tim Keller would tell you that that's Paul's testimony as a Christian. But I don't see how you could say that if all these other scriptures would interpret it to mean something different than that. Now, the way he describes it is interesting, and he says that if you think that that's not Paul as a Christian, then you are a shallow Christian. See, Paul is a deep Christian, and the deeper you go in Christianity, the closer you come to the light, and the closer you come to the light, the more you're able to see the flaws in yourself. And I wouldn't argue that one bit, that that would be true. But that's not a Christian witness, practicing evil. John says, if you practice evil, you're of the devil. He's deceived. I think he really is. And not that he's not you know, smart as a whip, not that he doesn't understand the scriptures, but in this, in this particular conclusion, I think he's deceived. I don't see how you could interpret that when you look at the rest of the New Testament and Paul's writings and John's writings to say that's the way a Christian ought to be. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I think if you read First John, and I would recommend you guys read First John, study First John, meditate on First John, because in this process of understanding the context and the gospel and how you respond to the gospel and what happens if you actually did respond to the gospel, we're going to get to the point where um, we're going to use First John to explain how you can know if you actually responded to the gospel, and. Um, it's so beautiful. You read these things and they're hard because they're not the way Christians talk. It's like if you're practicing evil, you're not born again. Well, how does that make any sense? Well, because that's what the Bible says. Give me just a second. And then um, John says, now listen, brothers and sisters, little children, I've written this so you might know that you're saved. So he's, he's giving it as signs. And I, I won't spend your time today with that sermon, but you're going to see... If you're like me, I mean, you might already have this revelation, but if you're like me, you're going to see a whole lot of scriptures in a different light when you look at them through the lens of First John, primarily through First John chapter 3. Did you want to mention something? Yeah. Could be. Could be. I don't know. And, and we do. And that, that let me make a point that as a Christian, if you're like, well, I'm not a Christian then because I sinned. It, no. As a Christian, you're likely to sin. But you're not likely to practice sin. And there's a huge difference. Huge difference. And yeah. And First John says... If you say you don't sin, you're a liar, and you make God to be a liar. But if you do sin, he's faithful and just or faithful and righteous to forgive you your sins, if you confess them, and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So, so the issue isn't the occasion of sin. It's the practice of sin. And that's why the practice is such a big word. It's such an important word to see in here. Um, but I'll go on to that one another time. So then my, my perspective is that this is Paul describing himself pre 
salvation. If, if he's describing himself now, he can't be saved just by looking at 1 John because of his practicing evil and not practicing righteousness, which are the two very signs that John gives as how you can know whether you're a Christian or not. But then finally, there's a third one. One of my commentaries, I've, it's so funny to me how the things that are like the most challenging to me, I'll look at my commentary and they'll, they'll, they'll comment on that verse and they won't even touch the thing that seems like the most. It'd be like, seriously, I mean, you call yourself a commenter, a smart guy, and you won't even tackle this? It, it, so many times it seems like the, 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 the things they say got nothing to do with anything relative to the tough matters of the scriptures as we try to discern them. And maybe the Lord did that because he wants us to dig in and meditate and come to know them through the spirit, not just through the commentator. But one of them I read had an interesting perspective, and, and I'll read it to you. Just This is straight from the commentary. He said, The forces of external law and internal sin, Paul's sinful nature, conflicted in the apostle. In 7.5, Paul addressed the struggle unbelievers have, but in verses 13 through 25, he was describing his own personal struggle as a Christian to obey the law and so overcome the promptings of his sinful nature, his flesh, to dis- disobey it. So, so this guy's perspective is that is Paul's Christian testimony, born-again testimony. However, what he wrote here is not normal or necessary Christian experience. Paul experienced this struggle as a believer before he understood his new relationship to the law as a believer in Christ. So it's, it's possible, I guess, you know, that's this man's perspective, that the Apostle Paul was relating, because all, all of the context of that whole thing is your relationship to the law. And, and if you read at the end of it, you know, he's like, praise be to God, and you go, you know, right into the very next verse is chapter 8, and it says, for there is now... Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It could very well be that what he was doing was trying to highlight the necessity of understanding our relationship to the law, how that's changed, and that until he got it, this was the churn that his life was in because he was trying to serve the law, not understanding that the law had no control over him. And as as soon as he empowered the law with his trying to obey it, unto righteousness, he empowered sin in his life to then mess with him. So I wouldn't fight with this guy over that interpretation. The scriptures don't say that's what it is, but they don't say that it's his pre- or post-conversion testimony either. So, you know, people smarter than me don't agree with me. I mean, Tim Keller is, is like 10 miles deeper than me. I don't agree with him. But I can, under, I can make sense of it the way this guy describes it. So not so much is it, I think, is it important that you, that you just drive a stake in the ground and say anybody that doesn't believe this is wrong, you know, Pastor Pat's so smart. It's, it, it's not that. But what you have to understand is that you're not under the law. You have to understand that there's no, to me, there's no victory and there's no hope in Paul's testimony, if that's a testimony of a Christian. What a wretched man I am. I can't do anything good. I'm just out of control. All I can do is evil, blah, 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 blah. That is not the testimony that a Christian should have. And, and I can see people. Matter of fact, I've talked to people. One of my closest friends says that I'm the worst sinner on earth. The only one that might be worse than me is him. And that before my feet hit the floor in the morning, I've sinned so much I couldn't even imagine it. And I'm like, 
I, don't, I just can't buy that. Where's Jesus in me if, if that's the way I'm living my life? And, and without, I'm not trying to say how wonderful I am, but that is not my testimony. I am so dramatically different from pre-conversion Pat. That guy doesn't exist anymore. And the, and the change happened fast. I mean, subtle things. I'd never thought about um, pornography. I, I looked at it all the time. No problem. And then at one point after I got saved, I thought, oh, my gosh, I don't look at that anymore. I never prayed. I never cried out to God, you know, deliver me from this. Cursing and swearing. I mean, the foulest mouth you've ever seen. I mean, seriously, I couldn't make a sentence without, you know, the, like the, the big one um, coming out of my mouth. And I said the, the, the swear word for poop one time. And somebody's like, <gasps> I'm like, what? They said, you swore. I said, all I do is swear. They're like, I've never heard you swear. I thought to myself, I pretty much don't swear anymore. I didn't pray about it. It just disappeared. Now, I know there are things that the Lord lets us wrestle with as he's testing our faith, but the point is, when we got born again, we got born again. We're a new creature in Christ, and if we take and say, well, you know, I'm just a dirty, rotten sinner saved by grace, and I'm just going to be, how can that be the light of the world? How can that be the salt of the earth? So, I had this written in the, like, I'm talking to you, and then I changed it so it's we, just in case I missed something. That was my intent, was to change it. But if 7.14, Romans 7.14.25, is descriptive of our lives, we should be asking ourselves some tough questions, starting with, am I born again? Seriously. If that's the testimony of a, of a Christian's life, first question that they ought to ask is, am I born again? And that's why John wrote the letter we know as 1 John, so we could know. And those are the examples he used. If not that, then at the very least, where is my love for God? And, and was my confession of the Lordship of Christ sincere? If anybody here, anybody, is believing the lie that that ought to be your testimony as a Christian, I'm just telling you right now, bold-faced, it's a lie. None of us should have that testimony. Will you sin? You bet. Is the devil trying to get you to sin? You bet. Has he got demons that know your past and all your buttons to push? You bet. But greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. And the testimony of Jesus Christ in our lives is powerful and it's true. The power of sin does not exist over us. The deception of the evil one might get us once in a while, but we're under no, no obligation to sin. We saw... I saw a video this morning. It was the cutest thing. I wish I, it would have been a great closer for this sermon. How old would you say that little girl was? Two years old maybe? Three years old, right? And there's a video, and here's this little girl. She's scared. She's little. Her lip is shaking a little bit. And what she did is she painted her Barbies with uh, fingernail polish. Did anybody see this? She painted her Barbies with fingernail polish, right? And her dad is correcting her. He's, she, she says, where are you allowed to use your fingernail polish? Outside. You, you know that you could have ruined your carpet and ruined your bed and ruined all your blankets. Yes. Well, why did you do it? Barbie told me to do it. Daddy, she told me hundreds of times. Daddy, all the Barbies told me to do it. It's, I didn't want to do it, Daddy, but the Barbies, they kept telling me hundreds of times, Daddy. It's like, Barbie ain't your boss, man. <laughs> He's not your boss, but he'll get us to think like a three-year-old and believe that he's the boss. So you can think about that cute little girl 
And you can say, sorry, dude, you are not my boss. You have no power over me. I am dead to the law. I am so free that I can have a relationship with the creator of the universe and not keep any of his rules because he made a risk by sending his son to fulfill the law so that I might not be under law anymore. Now, don't use it as a license to sin, right? There is no grace to sin, but once you understand the freedom that you have to then go and, and bring other people to that same freedom, just like Keith, this poor lady is all bound up in bitterness and unforgiveness. She was done wrong. No question she was done wrong, but that bitterness and forgiveness, is it, it owns her, but she can be free of it and not have to have any... Anyway, I'm, I'm kicking the horse that's already dead. Can you see why, at the very least, if you think that's Paul's Christian confession, it has to be like the second day he was born again. It can't be when he's writing the letter to the Romans because all of Scripture disagrees with that interpretation of the witness of a, of a Christian. Amen? Amen. Okay, Father God, awesome Father God, forgive me.